This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Welcome back, everybody. Today we have a very special guest in the house, someone who many argue is one of the greatest female athletes of all time. You likely know her, and if you don't, I guarantee I can jog your memory. Today we're speaking with three-time Olympic gold medal winner Carrie Walsh Jennings. Carrie began her career with indoor volleyball in high school, where she led her team to three state championships and won Gatorade High School Player of the Year. She then went on to Stanford to be selected for the All-American team four years in a row, second player to ever do that. Then she switched to beach volleyball and joined forces with Misty May Trainer in 2001, and the two went on to be ranked number one in the world and had one of the longest winning streaks in volleyball history with 112 matches in a row. Good gracious. Oh, and not to mention they won three Olympic gold medals together in 04, 08, and 2012. Needless to say, Carrie Walsh Jennings is the elite of the elite. Let's go to Carrie. Hello, Carrie. Welcome to Champagne Problems. What's up, dudes? Uh, <laughs> is that, is that right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> All right, this is so exciting. Thank you for agreeing to coming on, Carrie. Big shout out to our good pal, Annie Totten, for making this connection. Sweet girl. We are too fired up to talk to you to do any more introductions, so we're just going to dive right in. We would love for our listeners, even though they probably know you, but we would love to hear a little bit of your bio. Oh. Where are you from, your schools, You know what began your volleyball journey, all that stuff. Oh, man. Gotta, yeah, from the top. Got to get my memory going. <laughs> Well, I was born in Northern California in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, if mm. you've ever been there, you know it's heaven on earth. I am the second child, a uh, second of five children to my parents, Margie and Tim. Um, my mom was one of eight. My dad is one of four. I grew up in this environment that we lived within like three to five miles of every single relative I knew. So all my cousins wow. were around, my aunt and uncles were around. My parents had my brother and I when we were, we were really young. And so um, I just feel like my whole childhood growing up was an adventure. It was all centered around faith and family and sports. Every single human in my lineage is a competitor, um, oh, gnarly one. And so <laughs> I've just kind of bred and by nature as well, I'm, I've been an athlete since birth and it's been so fun. Um, I went to high school in San Jose, Archbishop Midi. I went to Stanford University, which is my first really big dream come true. Paid, played four years on the team there, got a college scholarship. Thank God, wouldn't have happened otherwise. Um, played uh -huh. for three national championships, won two. Um, played in five Olympics so far. Not sure if I'm done. <laughs> I, and, uh, <laughs> I met my, my husband. Um, I met him right after I left Stanford. Fell in love immediately. A couple years later, we got married, have three children, Joey, Sonnets, and Scout, who are 12, 11, and 8. Lived in the South Bay of LA for 20 years. Moved to Lake Tahoe, Nevada side about two years ago, and living the dream. Oh, lovely. That definitely sounds like a dream. Good gracious. No. I love hearing about the family all being in, in no. the area and... and a lot of nature, I assume, in those mountains. A lot of nature. Just running around. I wasn't allowed in the wow. house, so my mom, my mom is very clean human, <laughs> and she's like, "Stay out." So my my brother and I and my sisters, oh, that's awesome. um, we were just always outside exploring. And you know, 
that's why kind of we moved to Tahoe. You know, LA is wonderful and the beach is, you know, priceless, but getting our kids dirty and in nature and amongst the trees and the mountains has been really priceless. I think that space that comes with nature, you kind of, it comes inside of you as well. And you can kind of handle life yeah. a little better and, and reflect and respond more than react really. Oh, couldn't agree more. Love that. So did you, did you play any other sports than volleyball? I'm mean, assume you did. Yeah, but I, what others? yeah. I mean, I played all of them, um, whatever was in season for most of my life <laughs> until I got into high school In high school, I played, um, basketball and volleyball. And, um, you know, my, my dad played semi-pro basketball and he was a triple A pitcher for the Oakland A's six, eight pitcher. And he also played first base. My mom played sports in college at Santa Clara university. Um, I mean, we have it, you know, it was no choice, Yeah, (laughs) but I I really did get, can you dunk? (laughs) Not, I, you know, I never, I've literally never tried. Um, so I, I would, I have to say no. At this point, I would have to say no. I'm not in training or anything, and I'm kind of a tank right now. <laughs> but you know, if I if yeah, right. if I do come back, I gave myself till June to figure it out. Yeah. Um, I really want to work on my vertical, so perhaps that'll be my 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 quest. Yeah, I always kind of thought that that you know pro volleyball players could. Yeah, probably yeah, could. Definitely Especially yeah, ones who are yeah. six feet. Are you how tall are you? Six feet. I'm six two and a bit. And it's more about timing. Six, two, you know, you could have the worst yeah. vertical, but if you have good timing, then you're a Jedi. So I'm really focused on timing. Oh, yeah. But if I could have both, that would be pretty dope. So, uh, Carrie, what would be your most memorable or effective coach early on? <sighs> Man. Other than your parents. Yeah, you know, because I want my parents coached me in everything growing up, and they just wouldn't allow me to dick around. <laughs> you know, like... Like yeah. when I played baseball with my brother, um, we're 11 months apart. So I was just always with him, which I think really helped. But my dad, and this sounds terrible now, but we'd be like goofing off in the in the outfield. My dad would literally chuck baseballs at us, like pull your heads out of your A's, you know, and like you're here for a reason. And that's from the start, which is a valuable lesson in life and in sports. But, you know, one of my first volleyball coaches, his name is Louis Eggleson. Um, he's kind of a Zen master and he was just such a big believer in fundamentals. And so we would do the most boring drills every day from the time I was in fifth grade. He actually coached me in high school as well. And we became great because of the fundamentals, you know? And so I'm very, very grateful for that. I was an athlete who I was never short, but I grew late, you know, I grew tall late. And so I just Uh knew to be my best. I had to have a well-rounded game that was reinforced by my parents as well. Um, but Louis Eggleson, who I love forever, coached me on the Bay Club and at Midi, and he gave me the skills. Cool. It's Louis. So, it's so cool to, like, look back in, like, the 80s and 90s, and, and when I think about, like, coaches that influenced me growing up, they all had some type of, like, mental health guru-like mentality to where they were teaching something that they probably didn't even know that they were teaching that now we would consider to be mindfulness or or some type of spiritual practice that they embodied through the way that they coached. Totally. That's interesting. That would be our next question. Did you, you know, when you, as you started kind of moving up the ranks and probably more so in maybe the Stanford years, did y'all, did you have, you know, these big staffs and did they focus much on, mm. on health and wellness and, and mental health type stuff? No, um, not big huh. staffs for anywhere I went really. Um, you know, my high school okay. was kind of a powerhouse at the time as well. And no, the head coach was the leader. 
you know, for sure. Gotcha. They set the tone. Um, my time at Stanford, um, my head coach, Don Shaw, was incredible, super old school. You know, basically it's like show up, work your ass off and get the job done and make no excuses. Like he's my kind of oh, guy. Yeah. And he was supported yeah. by our assistant and future kind of associate head coach, Denise Corlett, who was more the nurturer, but she'd also crack the whip too, you know? So the staffs were never, were never big. And I think, you know, I think... I never experienced that, but sometimes things get lost when things get so big, you know, and then you focus yeah. on yes. things that you don't really need to focus on when I, I really believe I only want to pay attention to my side of the court and what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, I want to know tendencies and habits, but every, every coach I've ever had until this past year, couple years has really focused on my team, you know, and I think that's yeah. for a purpose. And do they include any any of the health and wellness and the mental health no. stuff, especially as you get, get higher? Yeah, that's interesting. It's because I would assume the opposite. Like especially when you're getting up into the Olympics, like you've got to navigate some serious stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, I th when you get like when you become a professional and in the Olympics, like USA, the USOC, USOPC, now they have they for sure have resources for you. You know, like my federation, USAV, um, they have a performance psychologist who you can speak to. But usually, once you become a pro, you kind of have to self-source those things. You know, and yeah. for me, yeah. I had to go through hell to be like, I need some help here. Um, and it all actually yeah. started with marriage counseling, <laughs> which led me sure. to my performance psychologist. And it was a beautiful awakening for me. You know, it's like I have coaches in every area of my life. Why not have a mental coach, you know, that helps me oh, get yeah. rid of baggage? Like, what a beautiful gift. Absolutely. And how, how did that develop in your career to where you realized you needed that? And, and how did that manifest itself? Well, you know, so I, I really did find my performance psychologist through marriage counseling. My One of my best friends, Rachel Scott, said she knew my husband, Casey, and I were going through some tough times. And she said, you know, Carrie, I went to Mike Gervais for volleyball, but he fixed my life. And I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds like the champion I need. And I started sitting with him and then Casey and I eventually started sitting with him. And, you know, we really, I mean, from a personal side, we went from like my husband's out the door, you know, to we came mm -hmm. back together. You know, we each worked on our own individual stuff um, and then came together and it was beautiful and it was a really hard, gnarly process. But then after that, I stuck with him um, be, like through the Olympics in, in London with Misty. Misty and I, you know, we're, there was going to be our third Olympics together. We had created this really ball of pressure and stress, and we weren't playing like ourselves. And um, he, we went to Gervais, and he just he helped us find ourselves again and find our swagger. And it was just so I'm a lifer with him. Like it's so rad. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I love that. Does the does your competitiveness does that translate over into personal life? How do do you have to turn it off? Like, what does that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, it's just, I want to win. I want to have fun. You know, I'm never, I'm never <laughs> not playing to not win, you know? Um, <laughs> right. So, yeah, I think so. You know, I've been called obnoxious and you need to chill out. But, you know, it's like an expression <laughs> of who I am, <laughs> you know? So if you want me to, you know, play Monopoly and not want to get like Park Place and, you know, make you pay me money all the time, like, why are you playing? <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> why are we playing? Exactly. It's called a game. Serious. There's a winner and a loser. I agree. Yeah, I agree. but I think it's playful. You know, a lot of people really get uncomfortable when people get competitive and when people express it. You know, and I know I can be obnoxious. Like, I'm not saying I'm a saint here, but a lot of people really have a tough time with competitive people. Um, and they take offense yeah. to it or they, they kind of project onto you that you're being too much when they just, you know, it makes them uncomfortable. And, you know, I'm okay making people uncomfortable because I'm not doing it to do it. You know, I'm just being me. Right. 
how does like the the stress of competing at the level that you competed at translate onto mental health? Like, it, was it something that, that did you kind of thrive off of that pressure, or was that something that you had to learn how to manage from a mental health perspective? You know, I never really... Or were you just kind of nat- naturally, like, just flowed with it? No, you know, I, I'm a natural competitor, for sure. Like, I, I love it. I love training, and I love competing. Um, but for a long time, I really was driven by the fear of failure, and I was really driven by my inadequacies, you know, and that, that made me yeah. great. Like I would, I busted my ass and I, I, I corrected every weakness, you know, and, um, but as I got older, kind of leaning on that framework really started to crush me and diminish me, you know? And so yeah. I, yeah. and this, I think this happened like in the lead up to Rio and, you know, I just started kind of like giving so much reverence to my competition um, and being like, oh, she's so good there. She's so good there. And diminishing myself in the process that like, it just started to like, instead of showing up only to compete, I showed up with already a head full of like how great they were and how hard it was going to be. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And so yeah. I've really, in the yeah. past years, I've really kind of had to reframe my, my mindset around it. Um, uh, basically being like where I lack is like pure potential. And that's so exciting because I'm determined to get that out of myself. Um, and also my job literally is just to show up and compete, like let everything with all my heart, you know, I can't control the outcome. I can't control how great my opponents play. So if I show up and compete, I know I'm a world-class competitor compare me to anyone in the world of any generation. I know I belong in that conversation. Um, and I say that very humbly because I'm, I'm a student of the, of the masters. I'm not great at many things, but I know I can compete. And so I worked a lot with my performance psychologist, Mike Gervais, and he was listening to me talk about certain matches and how I would bring, you know, talk about the pressure and the, this moment felt so big and I felt so tight. And he made me aware of the words I was choosing, everything I just said to you. And he's like, Carrie, can't you feel that pressure? Can't you feel that anxiety? And he's like, when you feel those moments arise, just smile and say, I'm here to compete. And that took the pressure off me 100%, you know? Because then it's like, yeah. fuck, instead of being like, oh God, what's coming? It's like, oh, like I'm I'm here, I'm signing up for this. I want this. I'm gonna be competitive in this moment. And then just string some moments together. So that's kind of been my journey. Oh, oh I love it. That's so motivating for anyone. It's so good. Oh. My mind goes to, you know, I don't know. I'm 45 years old. Uh, this Puppy. things change. You know, when I get older, my motivations change. Things that push me change, and and it's almost like I hear that in, in kind of what you just said. You know, yeah. early on, you created kind of your own motivators because you hadn't reached that level yet, and it took you up to that level. And then all of a sudden, you're there, and you're still kind of using the same motivators, and it's it might not be working as well. Yeah. So there's this transition that occurs, or this evolution that occurs as we grow older, emotionally more mature that you recognized mm-hmm. Mike, that, Mike, that, helped, Mike helped with. Got, That's just cool to hear. Yeah. That like competitive spirit, I've always just kind of been fascinated with what, what creates that inside of a human mm-hmm. being. How, how does that competitiveness and that discipline, because that's like, I mean. Hey, you know, this is Buddha over here. If I, <laughs> if I have like, a, like something that I really want to go after, one of, the, one of the hardest things for me is to become disciplined to mm. – you know, act in the way that I need to act to move towards a goal. Yeah. But it, it seems to me that some people just like innately have that ability. I have to believe that it's a lot of nature, 
you know, like what, how God designed us. Like, I really believe that. But for me also, like, and this is obviously just from personal experience, like it was fun, like competing, you know, it it was, it was always like, I, I never wanted to beat them. I just, I wanted to compete. I mean, of course I always wanted to win. Like that's, that's the goal, but I never saw them as my enemy. I never do. And so it just became of like, this is like, we're literally sharpening each other and we're working together Mm. toward an outcome, you know? And I think the original definition of competition is to strive together toward something. And I love that. I, I, I know when growing up, like it was a fun environment. It wasn't stressful. You know, it became stressful later on when I realized that the way I was framing things, it took the joy and that like sucked the life out of me because I was so afraid of losing. And that's where the transition came. But no, it's, you know, and there's so many different expressions of being competitive too. It doesn't always have to be like, I'm going to go for your throat or I'm going to speak certain ways. Like you can show up and just be so within yourself, you know, um, but the discipline part is a totally different conversation, which is interesting. Right. You know, and to me, that's just habits. Yeah. You know, you just got to keep that momentum going and every day remind yourself why you're doing it and what you want. And um, and there has to be purpose behind what you're doing because if there's purpose, there's no purpose. Um, the moment it gets hard, you're going to peace out, you know. So all, all those things are important. Where do you think that that like definition of competitiveness came from for you because i mean i think that that like how you described it is like the most healthy like you know you you see the fun in it you see it as like you know iron sharpening iron like i mean to me that that's like beautiful it's just not always the case with people exactly (laughs) no and not even for me you know i i mean i i would be a liar if i said i always saw it that way you know like i i lived probably the last quadrennial i didn't live in that way and i hated it i hated every moment of it you know, because I forgot like the true intention of all of it, you know, was for me to become, it's like sport to me and any big goal is really just an excuse to become better and more, you know, and that's my friction point. But I think I got that definition because it was modeled for me growing up. Like my parents, you guys, they're so still gnarly competitive, but growing up, like they played in the gnarliest co-ed softball tournaments and leagues and that sounds silly but it was so gnarly um like i told you my mom is one of eight there's six girls two boys they're all like just next level intense and then all of their husbands would come on and they play in a softball team called the family feud they didn't lose in like 10 years and there would you would, like within a game you'd see people talking yeah, shit yeah. you'd see my, my family talking shit to each other you'd see like, like bleeding oh my god no it was everything and they loved it and they, if they lost, like once in a, literally once in a blue moon, they would be so pissed, but so excited to compete again. You know, so like these little things you take away from the people you love and respect the most, but they had so much fun. And it was stressful for all of them because they all wanted to win. But it's like they wanted it. And that's a beautiful part, like anxiety and excitement. Like, you know, it's like how you define it. You know, one person yeah, defines yeah. excitement as anxiety. And so I feel like if you kind of, sure. if you can wrangle yourself around that, like choose excitement, choose not to be overcome by the anxiety. Just know that your body is saying this is exciting, you know, like this means something. So, oh, <laughs> your family. And you combine that with being outside, like in, in a beautiful setting. Like yes. That. Helpful. Thank God we're outside. Cool. There would have been like guns and blows. <laughs> oh my, yeah. Yeah. A little bit, of, a little more dysfunctional. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> So let's transition. Uh, In the spirit of our podcast, obviously we are an alcohol-centric podcast, and so let's dig into that subject if you 
would be so willing. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about your relationship to alcohol. Is it did it some early experimentation? You know, any of that kind of stuff. Is there a journey? Yeah, give me some. Give me some grit. Um, give me some stuff. Well, God, I swear, I literally have no memory of anything. But let me think. So. <laughs> My my mom my mom was 21 by the time she had me and I'm her second child. So my my and my parents two years apart. So they were they were kids raising kids, right? And I remember yeah. they had ragers <laughs> like on every single weekend, <laughs> you know. And it was all it was mostly family um, because everyone was so big and so around. But they'd have friends over and they'd have kegs. And my uncle and my grandparents worked for Anheuser Busch, so you know, like there'd be oh. there'd be ke literal kegs all the time. There was the Budweiser girls, you know, posters on the walls, um, and so <laughs> it was always before I got to college, like it was just always fun, you know. And I, I never yeah. I never paid yeah. attention to if it got out of control or what. Like it was like my parents are having fun. Where I'm around family, there's music. Like this is pretty incredible. And then in high school, for sure, like I was a pretty I'm pretty naive. I'm pretty Pollyanna. Um, I was afraid of my parents. <laughs> I never wanted to disappoint them. And that kept me pretty on the straight and narrow, you know? Um, thank goodness, yep. for sure. But a couple of times in high school, um, I definitely drank. My I think my first major memory of drinking, I went straight to gin. <laughs> oh, <laughs> cool. What? Like, that's how ignorant <laughs> I was. And um, it was just, it was horrible. It was so horrible. And the next day, we actually had practice. And I, all, it was all the oh. volleyball girls who were drinking. Like, this was so – and I was a junior. It was so out of character for us. And I remember being like, if you guys don't practice today, because we're all throwing up and just terrible, um, I'm going to be so pissed. And my best friend, after, like, one minute, she sat down. She's like, I can't do it. And then my coach, Louie, was like – after, like, you know, warm-ups and he just knew I was dragging, he's like – like, he made a comment like, oh, my God, he knows. Like, he knows I'm so drunk right now and I'm so hammered. Um, and it was so shameful. That's all he said, you know? And yeah. so I'm like, okay, well, this doesn't feel good. And so just a couple yeah. times in high school, I drank mostly boons. I didn't like beer at the time, you know, so strawberry boons. I'm sure you guys remember mm. if you're 45, oh, very well. um, very well. you know, the drink of champions. And then in college, yeah. um, freshman year, drank a lot of tequila, still can't look at the stuff. Yeah. Um, oh. you know, and just, I was a normal college girl, but really, I was really focused on winning. You know, so it didn't happen too yeah. much. It always happened in the off season. And then after college, you know, I would just, I competed a lot. Misty and I played in mostly every single final. So I didn't have the opportunities to parties on the weekends, which was great for me. I'm a pretty, I'm kind yeah. of a, a Herman introvert anyway. So when I do go out, I, I drink really fast because I'm uncomfortable, which is terrible. Yeah. So literally like after two or three drinks, even beers, like I, I just wouldn't remember the night. Um, I'm not a good drinker. And so basically I've been, my hope, my husband's been sober for 12 years. I've been pretty sober with him, you know, maybe once in a while, once a year I'll have a beer, but I'm kind of over that too. So that's where I'm at now. Really? Uh-huh. Oh, interesting. That's when, very cool to hear. Yeah. When you were training, was it, was there, you know, when you were working with any kind of trainer or, or coach that was working on optimal performance, was alcohol ever involved in that conversation? No, it never, it, it was never a problem for me. You know, um, yeah. like thank goodness yeah. because our sport is fun. You know, volleyball is, yeah. is like the best lifestyle ever. And, you know, in the eighties, it was known, it was almost like WWF or WWE. Like it was a raging sport and people would do all sorts of drugs yeah. and alcohol and show up to tournaments and still kick butt in the nineties and in the two thousands. Um, and since I've ever, I've played, it's been very professional, you know, um, and there's yeah. tournaments like there's tournaments back to back to back to back. 
you have to be in tip top yeah. shape. So and, never an issue. But my yeah. husband, obviously, like he's one of, one of the best that's ever played, and he got into a pickle. He's from Vegas, you know, and um, that to me says <laughs> a lot about my husband. It. Um, and it's yeah. my favorite part about him. But he, you know, he started drinking early in his life, smoking early in his life, and every year he'd come out to the beach and he'd quit drinking from January till like July, and then he'd just uh-huh. let it rip. You know, and at some point when we went through our marriage problems, um, he started drinking so much and, um, that led us with conversation. Like, I think it's time to go to rehab and he's like, F you, I don't need that. I'm just leaving. Um, Uh, and I asked him again and again, and then he went and that changed both of our lives. Good. Good to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, We're, I mean, you know, we're not, we are an alcohol centric podcast, but we don't, we're not into prosecuting alcohol, you know, no, alcohol is not bad. That's not, that's not, that's not what we do here. No. It's more rash, rational discussions and really, really just kind of information and education yeah, well, and you maybe know, a little prevent. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think celebrating life is so important, you know, and, and cheersing with yeah. your mates is like, that's a beautiful gift. You know, it's kind of sacred. And for me, I have a friend um, who I met later in my life who's become my best friend. She's like, you know, I just, I've never, had a drink around people I don't know or I don't like, you know, and I'm like, God, oh, like that's beautiful because that's the only time Freedom. I have a drink. Right. Yeah. Where I'm just so uncomfortable, <laughs> you know? And so I just like, I want to teach my kids that, you know, if you're going to go and have some beers, like be in a trusted, safe space, you know, because this is going to yeah. change how you see the world, how you interact, how you, you know, express yourself. So just be around trusted people, you know, that's important. I like that word sacred. Yeah. In terms of relating to it. Well, it's, it's interesting you said, because I, I, I'm the same way. I'm, I'm, people think I'm social and people think I'm an extrovert and I'm really not. And, and I get out and I get super uncomfortable. And I mean, I haven't had a sip of alcohol in 16 years, but prior to that, man, I couldn't leave. I couldn't have many interactions at all without it. I yeah. mean, that was obviously my problem, but it was very much in the, in the light that you shared where I just was so uncomfortable yeah. and it just, it, it helped. It always helped. Always. And I'm such a better dancer yeah. when I drink. I don't think I've danced once. Oh. Ugh, I miss it. Me too. You know, I got to tell a quick story. I danced for the first time like four months ago so in like 16 years. I mean, I, even at my wedding. Went even viral at, on TikTok. Yeah, it was very viral. I, uh, so viral. Even at my wedding, I, was, I really had a trouble. I really had trouble dancing. I, I couldn't do it. Oh, it sucks because I love to dance. And I dance at home. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. In the, well, if nobody's around, oh, absolutely. We just need to turn the lights down lower. It's always too bright. I'm really good in the dark, too. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So you you know you hear often about, and, and maybe this was uh, one particular Olympics, and I can't remember. I think it was the one four years ago. Anyway, where they were, they, there's all these rumors about the Olympic athletes partying and all that stuff. Yeah. Is that? I mean, is there some truth to that? I mean, the comp- the highly competitive, high performing people get out there and get it done. Hell yes, <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, yeah. I, fig- I figured there's some truth. Yeah, you know, I I haven't really experienced it in the village because we always move out because that energy, sober or not, is like so gnarly. Oh, yeah. You know, and some athletes are literally got to be intoxicating well, in it's, that environment. It's just so, it's such a huge input on your system, 
you know, like you want to talk about sacred spaces when you're like competing for gold, you want to like be in a sacred bubble and not be impacted by all this other energy. You know, I'm pretty empathetic and I feel everything, everyone else's emotions. So I need to get myself out of there. But the stories, so I have to assume they're true, knowing the energy and knowing the athletes. Like my first Olympics going into 2000 indoor, I was so depressed. I was, I mean, virtually an alcoholic, you know, and like, I mean, I, you know, I was more of a binge drinker than a day, you know, daily drinker, but it's just the stress of it, the pressure of it, the release of it when you're done, the camaraderie yeah. you have amongst other athletes, like there's beautiful th things to it too. But, um, for me, it took me in a dark place, um, in my first Olympics. And then, you know, alcohol just hasn't served me well post celebration either. So, but the Olympians have yeah. fun and it's a beautiful and they deserve it. And, uh, you know, and now in the day, in, in the age of cell phones and everyone having a video out, I just wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> yeah. How did you make that shift? Like when you recognized that, hey, you know, this isn't serving me. Like it, w what was the thing that kind of came to light that made you realize that? And then what kind of changes did you make in your life to kind of move past it? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting for someone who never has really – been a big drinker like even when I drank I just it would happen like twice a year but it would just be like yeah. I wouldn't remember one thing and so I would yeah. get sick of my husband sitting me down and being like let me to tell you what you did last night <laughs> like and I literally yeah, that's, a, that's a scary conversation oh my gosh you know and even like you know and I'm just like I'm a free spirit like by nature and then just to add that where there's just no you know boundaries or reservations it just was bad and I was ashamed you know, and I couldn't, re I literally oh. couldn't remember to be like, that's ridiculous. I would never do that. Like, so I had, you know, I had to listen to my husband recount many nights and, um, that got very old. And then my husband yeah. got sober and I respect it so much. And I think in the process of, of us figuring, figuring ourselves out, come figuring our marriage out, my husband going to rehab, learning about everything, um, just kind of the, mm -hmm. the, the mental process and the healing process led me just to be away from that you know, cause I didn't need it. Yeah. And I have, I have a new self-awareness yeah. about who I am or who I want to be, how I want to feel in my life. Um, and that, you know, again, just doesn't serve me and I don't handle it well, you know, like yeah. I just, it doesn't do well with me. So yeah, can't yeah. force it. What are some of the key takeaways like relationship wise with your husband's sobriety? What are the big differences that you see now that your husband stopped drinking? Yeah. You know, just, I mean, clarity is a gift, yeah. you know, and life is so hard and so confusing as is and adding things outside of ourselves that make things even more muddy and more dramatic, you know, and more stressful. Um, that was gone out the window. Like that's been very, very nice. Yeah. When my husband went into rehab, I prayed every single day just for him to come out with clarity, you know, um, it, even because he was in there for 14 days saying, I'm still going to leave you. You know, and I'm like, just get healthy. Yeah. And all I want is you to make that decision with a clear mind and heart, you mm, know, and, yeah. and that was, that was beautiful. Um, we have much more honest conversations, you know, um, we hear each other more and I think it's just cause we're more present, you know, and there's nothing yeah. dumbing mm -hmm. us down or numbing us or, you know, or aggravating us. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just a cleaner life. You know, we, our priorities are very clear and when you're clear, like magic happens. It doesn't mean it's easy, yeah. but it means that you can find no. alignment and you can work together. Um, and we have that now, which is really nice.
Wonderful. So let's plug P1440. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Well, it was born out of heartache (laughs) because our sport (laughs) is just so wonderful, but it's such a poop show on the professional level. And my husband and I found ourselves (laughs) complaining about it for so long that we're like, let's just do something about it. So we left our tour and we started a new um, company called Platform 1440, P1440 for short. And we wanted it to be kind of the heart and soul of it to be volleyball. But we wanted it to be universal principles. And 1440 comes from that the fact that there are only 1440 minutes in the day. What are you doing with ah. yours? You know, and for me and for nice. us, time is sacred. Um, if you live your life on purpose, if you live in the moment, like that's where you create beautiful lives. That's how you create your future is by living powerfully in your now. You know, I mean, that's how you affect everything. That's how you can actually change your past is by correcting things in the, in the present you know, and just reframing Mm -hmm. things. And so we started this company that is half digital, half live events. And basically we're kind of the go-to resource center for all things volleyball. So you can train with us. You can train your body, mind, and spirit with us. Um, We have coaches on there learning from other coaches. And then we have live events where the athletes get to compete and really sharpen um, their skills against, you know, in that kind of, in that platform. So um, like I said, competition changed my life. And volleyball changed my life. And my husband and I have really just wanted to give back to the game. We started servicing the pros. And then that got really polarized and political. And it's just a mess of a world. And so now we're focusing on the juniors. And the juniors deserve all of this. They deserve the mental health. They deserve the encouragement. Mm -hmm. And we really want to help them develop their toolkits so that they can internally source whatever they need to withstand and thrive in the moment. Because life is going to throw everything at them. The sport is going to throw everything at them. And we really believe that we're all built from day one with everything you'll ever need inside of you to handle these things. And we just want to remind these athletes of that and help them sharpen that. God, that is sick. Yeah. That's really cool, Gary. Um, and how much of the, the spirituality – is? It, we're both kind of gurus, specific, specifically Patrick, but how much spirituality are you all throwing in some of that? Um, it's weaved into everything. You know, like that that trinity, the body, mind, and spirit to me is everything. I know that's where greatness lies. I know that's why we were blessed with all these elements was to use them all, you know, synergistically. Um, And so all of it, you know, we just had a summit out in Florida and we had, I think, 58 of the top juniors in the country come out and they fly themselves out and then we take care of everything, the training, the meals. Um, And we did a lot of volleyball work. We did breath work. We did meditation. We talked about anxiety and pressure and who you really are and why you're doing this. And it's so powerful. And we got feedback last week being like, this literally changed my daughter's life. You know, that anxiety she was carrying is is lifted. And she's just competing now freely, which is like, oh, my God, what a beautiful gift to us to be able to be part of that. How is that organization funded? We have an amazing investor um, who has just believed in it from the start and so that's number one. And now we're yeah. trying to really become um, profitable and sustainable on our own and bring in brand partners. You know, kind of our sport okay. has always yeah, yeah, yeah. leaned on the brands. And that to me, it's a fickle space. You know, like we, we need to create sound programs that at least break even, <laughs> you know, and monetize, yeah. monetize yeah, yeah. respectfully. Um, but, you know, the, the, these girls, they pay, you know, like a tenth of the family income goes to club sports. Like, yeah, you know, I can imagine. I know it just seems to be getting more and more expensive. Yeah. And... So we want to, We don't want to be part of that problem. With within our futures tour, which is one of our programs, we are giving out one hundred and ten thousand dollars of prize money. 
So after seven mm-hmm. events, um, the top 40 points earners are going to earn money. You know, it basically covers yeah. their costs for club and for travel. So yeah. it's basically reimbursement mm-hmm. because they still want NCAA compliance. But our investor, who is the most incredible woman who supports the sport, who supports female-led businesses, um, and who is just such a good humanitarian, she supports us 100%, and it's a beautiful gift. I want to monetize our game. I want the market to yeah. recognize us because they should. Our demographic is so powerful. The lifestyle, the the lessons, like our sport is so yeah. unique. It makes no sense to me why the Nikes of the world and you know all of them are not like banging down our door. We have amazing sponsors with Franklin and Smack Support Sportswear right now, and we're growing. Mm-hmm. You know, but we are very holistic. And when you build things like brick by brick by brick, it takes longer for that to come. You know, and, and the feedback we got initially was like, we don't know who you are. Your sport is so fickle. You could be gone in a week. You know, so we've been around almost four years now, and we're proving ourselves, and um, all of that's coming. I have no doubt. I mean, huh. anything that's that's driving mental, emotional, and spiritual wellness home and physical wellness home to young adults and teens, like we just <sighs> we need more and more of it. Yeah, and that's the future. Totally. Of, the future, and we're not doing enough to fill their cups up. That's for sure. Yeah, you know, a little <laughs> encouragement goes a long way. And for yeah, me, my favorite leaders are always obviously the authentic leaders who walk their talk. There's a book that I love. It's called Lead Yourself First. And if you don't read the book, don't read the book, but read the title, Lead Yourself First. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how you change the world, you know, is be- yep. by becoming who you want to become and what you believe the world needs. And then that just sets off all sorts of chain reactions and dominoes that are beautiful and powerful. And so if we can wake up one girl and show her the beauty of herself and the inherent strength in herself, she's going to stand up a little taller. And then that's going to inspire her friend to do the same, you know, and this is boys and girls. Like I got two boys, I got my daughter, like this is for humans. Um, but you know, volleyball is a pretty female centric sport, at least right now. Um, but you guys, you know, you guys walking your talk, having this podcast, like, these things that maybe seem small are powerful examples of what you can be. And these conversations yeah. are so powerful. So I'm grateful to you guys. And I'm grateful to 1440 for giving me the platform to help share this stuff. Cause I've been through hell and back mm. and I don't want that to be for not, yeah. I want to share like how I got through it <laughs> and my people and you know, it's a gift. Yeah. We feel very similarly. Well, you're such a leader and you're so inspiring and, and such an established leader. We would love it if you could leave our listeners with maybe three pointers, three bullet points from a kind of a leadership perspective. This this life I've lived, here's what I want to leave you with. Probably something along the lines that you do in P1440, but how? what, what can you leave our listeners with on, on how to just... You know, everything we've talked about, grow and be and do and succeed and be happy at the same time. Boom. Goodness. There's just so many. I think, I mean, I'll just start by kind of what I just said is lead yourself first. To me, that's the antidote to everything is literally within yourself. If you're waiting to be saved from an outside source, from a pill, from a drink, from a relationship, like that is built on shaky ground because you don't own that. So to me, it's like lead yourself first, be accountable for every area of your life, and you can and will live the life that you want to live. Um, the second thing is mm. that pay attention to your, your focus and your thoughts. I'm a very big believer in law of attraction. So what you focus on is what you invite into your life. Like if you ever notice you're having a, a shitty, crappy day, literally pay attention to what your thoughts were for the past hour, and you'll be like, oh, I deserve that. 
you know? Like, have you ever been in a kind of an a-hole mood and that's all you run into is a-holes? Like, like it's right. like. So pay attention yeah. to your thoughts and your focus because that is, that's guiding your days and that's guiding your life. For me with, you know, with the pandemic and everything, I was so in it. Like every day I'm like, I have to know everything. I have to know this for my children. I want to save us. And it like, I was crushed. Like my soul, my spirit, I felt like, like I was being empowered with knowledge, but it was crushing me. And finally my husband's like, babe, get out of it. Like literally pull yourself out of that. And it changed everything. So pay attention to your thoughts. Um, and then for me, also, I really believe that to do to be successful in anything, all you got to do is show up and be sincere. You don't have to be scripted. You don't have to be perfect. Like you don't have to be any of that. You have to show up and be sincere and try your best. Like that to me is the key for success. But don't just do that that one time. Do that every single time. And then that just becomes your default. You know, one of my favorite quotes is, within chaos and stress, we fall to the level of our training. And so to me, that means if you train yourself to be optimistic, if you train yourself to be focused on the solution, not the problem, if you train yourself to believe everything is there to serve you and get curious about your challenges, um, then when things get hectic, that's what you're going to lean on and fall into, you know? So, um, and those all, everything I just said is like self-sourced. And that's what I just want people to know is that you're a damn hero. Like you're your own hero. And all, all of the evidence is there, but you have to start looking to yourself first. Mm. Well, Carrie Walsh we're... Jennings, ladies and gentlemen. You heard it from the best. Oh. Thank you so much, Carrie. You're welcome. And none Good of that is mine. Gracious. I mean, that's taken from everyone. <laughs> but Yeah, no, we get it. We get it. But it came, came out of your mouth, and uh, we're listening. All right. We're listening. Well, you guys are rad. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much. It was great to meet you. You too. And we appreciate everything you're doing. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.